I'm going to explain a little bit about what we're going to talk about tonight. It's not continuing the Ecclesia series as I originally intended. It will still address it, um, but it's going to be a little bit more culturally relevant. But before I do that, uh, I got permission from Josiah to share his latest Facebook post. Okay? So I'm going to share this with you, and it is he has approved of this. Okay, so here's what Josiah posted to Facebook uh, a couple hours ago. Here is a puzzle that is currently perplexing me. The scenario. I have a fridge that is turned up to max so as to act like a freezer. When I put ice cream and pudding next to each other, the pudding freezes and the ice cream melts into a liquid consistency. When I put root beer and apple juice in there next to each other, then the root beer freezes, but the apple juice thaws out. Why is my fridge not equal in its treatment of my groceries? <laughs> and I, it just made my entire day. Um, it also really made me just want to go buy you a freezer. And, uh, that, is, that is awesome. So thank you for... Josiah, you're such a light man. Thank you for posting to Facebook. Um, so, Ecclesia, study of the church. Um, as I've mentioned before, it's easy for us to really get into the nitty-gritty of like church planting and what it means to be a missionary or be a disciple. But especially for this group, us to be able to come together and really understand what is the application of this? Um, how is it culturally relevant? How do we marry the idea of being the church with the, the, the reality of living this life and being on this planet? So, with that in mind, um, I didn't want to continue on with the series uh, so as to reject or ignore uh, what is happening in our culture. Um, it's no secret there's been division. It's no secret there's been tension, but it is all coming to a head. Um, we are effectively without a president and leader. So how can we really root ourselves in Christ uh, and process all of that which is going on? Uh, yesterday we had youth group and I had seventh graders, multiple of them, kind of saying, we're so glad we're here at church for two hours. It doesn't matter what we talk about. I just am tired of watching the news and hearing about the election. And I just started to think about that. If a seventh grader has come to that realization, that it doesn't matter what happens when they're around believers, as long as it's not diagnosing the world and talking so much about struggle some more, um, they're all for it. And so because of that, I want to talk a little bit about uh, God's sovereignty tonight, sovereignty over struggle. Uh, and so what we're going to look at uh, is, is 10 points uh, addressing sovereignty or 10 passages on sovereignty, uh, and then I want to end with uh, three psalms to consider. So I'm going to ask three people here tonight to, to share these psalms, uh, Psalm 10, Psalm 4, and Psalm 146. We'll get there um, kind of at the end. But really, um, what we're going to notice here, especially in the next couple weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas, is Keystone is going to have a lot of opportunities uh, to be the church, not just study the church, but actually be the church. I'll, I'll share more on that and what that means at the end. Um, but if we can really understand and appreciate God's sovereignty in the situation and circumstance now, um, it, it's going to give us uh, hope and peace, even a sense of peace that might not make sense. Um, and that's one telltale sign that it is from the Lord, uh, comparing it to everything else that's going on. So uh, sovereign over struggle, I will share uh, these scriptures before I read them. Feel free to flip to them, or even if you just jot down the reference, you can go back to them or do that as you like. But uh, the first one I want to read is Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 6 through 7. So I'm going to share 10 passages, and I'm going to kind of bring up 10 different points that will hopefully help all of us unpack God's sovereignty in a, in a pretty practical way so I can understand where the rubber meets the road on that. Because again, sovereignty is a big word with an even bigger meaning. It can often main, maintain that ethereal, super spiritual, okay, yeah, yeah, God is ultimately in control but it's easy to live as if he's not controlling all things. God being in control versus controlling all things 
and being a part of what is happening um, can actually help us really process and stomach what's going on. So I want to read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Here's what it says. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That passage is coming out of Isaiah 9, a a book of prophecy, a book of foreshadowing uh, Christ's coming that obviously has yet to happen uh, amidst that biblical context. The book of Isaiah is full of of all those prophecies, especially pointing towards a crucifixion and ultimately uh, what Christ came here to do. Um, But what's encouraging about that um, is this idea that the government shall be upon his shoulder, uh, and he is the one earning these names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, And and along with that, the increase of that government and peace, there will be no end. And then it addresses something culturally relevant, a, a name that we can help identify with this idea of power and status. And that is the throne of David, um, coming out of the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What's helpful to understand about that language is it's not just limited to the time in which Christ was born, right? We have this cultural context, the importance of this baby being born, right? We'll have the Christmas story here before we know it. It's easy to think, okay, so he, he fit into that government. He fit into that scope. That cultural context where Jesus was living, breathing, walking the earth is what that prophecy is speaking towards. And that's true, but the language suggests it goes beyond that. True and forevermore. This is, we are talking about God. This is a prophecy about God just as much as it is Jesus the man. So what's helpful for that as far as we tackle sovereignty in our life is that as far as we navigate life and think about it, there is no separation of church and state. And what I mean by that is God is sovereign enough to still be in control of those things. Now, I bring up that idea of church and state to not consider it the same as what the world does when it says the phrase church and state. You hear often the separation of church and state. In fact, that's actually a great thing. I am for the separation of church and state because what it does is promotes and protects religious liberty outside of government intervention. But when I'm using it here, there's no separation of church and state. It means to walk as a Christian is to not displace God from the other things that are happening, right? If we're called to be the body of believers, this ecclesia, the church, the called out ones, it can be helpful to understand God is just as sovereign over what is or isn't happening in the White House as he is in in a church building. Uh, He is just as sovereign in an election that is continuing to be more divisive, more accusatory, less friendly than they've ever been before. So it's easy to get caught up in that, and it's easy to displace it from God. And a lot of Christians will do this. They will go to Facebook. They will attack in the wrong ways and use God's name to to push an argument of, of God is not here. We need to return God to the situation. And it's a slippery slope to suggest we are now out of God's control or, or that, God, we need you to be working through this. But Scripture tells us he is. Scripture tells us he is working through all these things for our good. And so when we are reacting to what is happening around us, our, our gut instinct all the time is to do that and say, God might not have this. Um, God might not be able to pull this off or, or this, that, and the other. And so I start out with that passage to really represent and, and give us a grand scheme of, of God sent his son here and he is going to rule 
uh, in every sense of the word, he is going to rule and there is an authority above that. So that's kind of the first talking point there from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, the second one here, uh, Psalm 102, uh, verses 15. Here's what it says. Uh, Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Uh, outside of our study and outside of our context, I love Psalm 102 because when the Bible addresses fear, uh, it often addresses it in a very different way. Oftentimes the language speaks more to our fearing of the Lord in a, in a correct way. Um, in a reverence, out of a reverence for Christ, it says in, in a lot of Paul's letters. Our fear of God is to understand what he's capable of and to revere him. And so to see this scripture uh, share a little bit on the nations and, and use worldly, earthly context to really understand uh, how powerful the name of the Lord is uh, and the, even the kings of the earth will fear the glory of God. And, and so what's fixed there is the name of the Lord and his glory. What is variable there is the nations and the kings of the earth. And so again, if we can keep that biblical perspective, that it is the name of the Lord and glory that is more chronic than the divisiveness than we are seeing, it's actually going to be a lot easier to process it, a lot easier to stomach it. And what's good about biblical application is scripture can remind us of that, but we are not equipped often to have scripture be our measure of first response when this stuff comes up. Okay? For better or for worse, I love politics. I hate that I love politics. I'm going to be face-to-face with God, and part of me is going to be like, man, why did you make me love politics? It was really annoying that you did that, that I love politics, because I can't not figure it out and check in on things and see what's happening. But there is a foundation of discouragement and a goal of division in this government, in this system. We're seeing it more and more. It's going to be easy to displace biblical principles and and thinking biblically from that. And as we engage the culture, uh, we need to be biblically dependent, not dependent on on public speaking, not dependent on social groups, not dependent on any specific policy, principle, or value, or movement, but the Bible, the verses that suggest God is sovereign and we are capable of demonstrating his sovereignty in our life and the life of those around us. Because then it's not whether or not our allegiance is with a movement called Black Lives Matter. It's whether or not our allegiance is with Christ. And if we believe he's calling us to support a movement for that reason, we are heightening now more than ever, what party are you a part of? What movement are you a part of? What nation are you sympathetic towards or empathetic towards or apathetic towards? And so it's easy to focus in and care so much about one thing that your heart can actually drift from the ultimate source of that care and what we're ultimately called to come back to. So to remember that those nations, those problems, those policies, those rulers, those presidents, those kings, those preachers, those pastors, they will fear the name of the Lord. They will fear his glory. So in a world of symptoms... Do not forget the disease. That's the second point there. The first was this idea that there's no separation of church and state as far as God's ability to intervene and be in control. The second is, in a world of symptoms, do not forget the disease because nations fearing the Lord and even the kings of the earth fearing his glory suggest there's something much bigger at play. Now, unfortunately, the church is very good at saying, oh, the, the, all lives matter. And that's a very slippery slope of an argument because it's going to suggest that we're undermining somebody else saying that a black life matters. That's what's happening now. The biblical church-based response is, well, all lives matter. To a certain extent, duh, they do. But how can we appreciate somebody who is suggesting a black life does? We have to have this back and forth to really understand that we're not trying to 
be divisive. We're not trying to put anybody else down, but we need to value life. So to remember, though, that the heart of the issue is sin can help us tackle those things. And I think the church has been phenomenal for thousands of years. It has been phenomenal at saying, no, 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 sin is the issue, right? Talk about any biblical parenting. Talk about any Christian homeschooler coming across sin for the first time in their life. Sin is the issue. That's true. But we need to remember it sometimes more often than we're so quick to proclaim it. And it can actually give us a stamina, give us a sense of encouragement. That, okay, well, what that person is dealing with is sin. What God dealt with for me was and is sin. And if I am more aware of the grace that has been given to me, I am more equipped and empowered to give that grace to somebody else who is still working their life out. That's the difference in how we can encounter and honestly get through these debates, these divisions. Think biblically. Be biblically dependent. And luckily we can remember this verse suggests that every knee will bow. You hear that all the time. You hear it in worship. You hear it in sermons. Every knee will bow. Um, And that's true. And we can rely on that and be reminded of that daily so that we don't get into the tangles of trying to bow our knee to anything else or settle for less than, than God's sovereignty and his glory. So that second passage there is from Psalm 102. In a world of symptoms, do not forget the disease. The disease of sin will ultimately lead to nations fearing the name of the Lord and the kings of the earth fearing his glory because they are not of him. Uh, third passage here, uh, something that's well known, something the church is going to be hitting on here. Romans eight thirty-eight through 39. For I am sure, Paul writes for the church in Rome, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a, a, a front and center passage for overcoming struggle, right? If we're, if we're going to tackle tonight the idea of sovereignty over struggle, this is a, a very helpful scripture to remember and give perspective to our struggle, mainly because nothing is going to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what does that mean? That means God's church is immune to separation from him, which is going to beg the question, are we acting like that's the case? God's church is immune to separation from him. So if we find ourselves in a context or in a situation where either we feel like he has removed himself or maybe we are willfully removing ourselves, we need to remember that, that there is no distance we can run that will outstretch the Father's hand. There is nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That speaks to my internal motivations and what I choose to do in life, right? Luke 15, prodigal son. How far away can I go before the Father disowns me and decides not to rejoice when I come home? There is no limit to that. But as far as us tackling something as repulsive and divisive as an election, we can remember that we are not separated from the love of God. Often we are separated from the love of people. There are probably people in this room that are separated from the love of their families. So how can we tackle that as the church? How can we be motivated at, well, it's a good thing then that if they've accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, there is nothing that can separate them from a love that is that much greater than what they're used to. Romans 8, 38 through 39 reminds us that the church is immune to separation. And we just looked at a verse out of Psalms that says it doesn't even matter which nation it is. It doesn't even matter which king or which ruler it is because God is ultimately sovereign. Another passage here from Psalm 46. Uh, we'll, come, we'll read this in greater context here soon, but here's what it says. Again, as I read through these things, think about what we're dealing with hour by hour, minute by minute in this country. The nation's rage... 
the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He can break the bow and shatter the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And then here's a phrase you've probably heard before. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And I love this passage because God affirms in us the ultimate goal that we ought to have will be carried out. Namely, that he will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. And the passages leading up to that suggest it is because of his capability, not because of ours. Again, reminding us of the need to come to the end of ourselves and equip and empower us with the Holy Spirit to see this out. What's interesting, though, is that be still and know that I am God. And that says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. For us to understand God's sovereignty can be partnered with us understanding what is his actual goal. Because he's not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. In fact, God's actual goal for this country over the next umpteen years might very well be division. It might be strife and struggle. In fact, your cliche grandma Facebook post for the last 35 years has said, oh, the church has turned away from God. His righteous hand's going to come down and smack us all with chariots of fire. I don't think chariots of fire are coming till the very end, but it might start to feel like what we're seeing now. So again, what is God's goal in his unfolding plan? Okay, I am pro-Christ-centered Republican. I am pro-Christ-centered Democrat. I am pro being reminded in an election that God will deliver. God will give us hope. But what is that hope? It ain't Trump. It ain't Biden. Your Savior's name is not Donald or Joseph. It ain't Michael or Kamala. It's Jesus Christ. And he already came. He already served his term. And he's still serving in a different way. He's equipped us with a resource. And it goes way beyond a CARES Act to empower us and equip us and keep us safe and protected. Why? Because our goal is not to have a perfect president or perfect leader. Our goal is not for the United States of America to come together as one. That is not our goal. In fact, if this country does come together as one, I fear what that one looks like compared to Christ. We're called to be the church. We're called to stand out and call people to Christ, regardless of division, because there will be. The devil has home field advantage, and the Christian narrative is we need to make sure he doesn't. No, we need to embrace the fact that he does. God will be exalted among nations. That's our hope. God will be exalted. It might not be 2021. I bet it won't be. But he will continue to be exalted. His plan will continue to unfold. And we hype up these elections. We hype up the every, once every four years. You get more vocal. You get more vibrant. You get, more, you get less passive, more aggressive. It will go back to three more years of passive-aggressive. And then it will go back to a fourth year of aggressive. This is not new. None of it is. Hundreds of years ago, even less than that, decades of years ago, politicians were literally shooting each other to try to win elections. People were scamming each other, setting buildings on fire. None of it's new. Twitter makes it seem like it is. Makes it seem like it's a majority of what is happening in this country, but it's not. You want to know what the, the... nation majority is, it's confusion. It's an identity crisis. The church doesn't have that. The church has biblical clarity and an identity rooted in Christ. So if we can remember that God can and will speak into things, and it'll be according to his timing and not ours, we can rest easy. 
God can and will speak into things, and it'll be according to his timing, not ours. And glory to God for that. We can rest easy. I went to bed at 5 a.m. after watching this garbage. Woke up, all the shades of the states looked a different color. I'm like, what are we even doing here? They switched back forth to and fro, to and fro. I realized, okay, I'm putting too much stake, too much energy in this to dictate my joy and happiness throughout the day because I'm not relying on Christ. So amidst this slippery slope, right, every excuse under the sun to be upset or frustrated, a Christian has something that can outweigh that. It's the peace of God, a sense of peace that doesn't make sense, and it's a God so sovereign that he will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. Here's a passage from Revelation, chapter 17, verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now, obviously, we're not doing a study of Revelation, right? Obviously, we would have to address and really break down the the, the bigger, larger context of the book of Revelation and what it's speaking towards as far as prophecy and catching us up on the status of the church and and what God is going to do in in this millennial kingdom and all that different stuff, right? There are a lot of theological dovetails and Revelation-based studies we can go on. But look at the way it quantifies that war again against the Lamb and then suggests where we fall in it. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of Lord and King of King, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So I wonder how many people are a part of God's church. Maybe they attend God's lowercase c church. They, have, they don't know if they're a part of him or not. They have yet to profess their faith in Jesus. But they don't realize that they're called or can be, or chosen or can be, and are faithful and can be. And that word faithful is is used in various ways throughout the Bible. Two major ones are one is to be faithful, to live out your faith. But the also is to remember you are full of faith. You have the Holy Spirit. You are empowered. You have this ability to live out your faith. So Revelation reminds us that the war is not against us. It is against something much bigger. Yes, there's a war on racism. Yes, there's been a war on terror. But if we're honestly relying on a long-term, peaceable solution that dictates a perfect policy from a perfect person with wonderful perspective, it's not going to happen. So the church needs to be ever-changing in that. It needs to have the stamina and the perspective to remember, okay, that's right. God's sovereignty suggests that I need to be patient in this. Even FBC is going through a pastoral transition. And what they want to do is start equipping new leaders, new staff members, new pastors to deal with what? the exact same problems they dealt with all 35 years they've been here. It's not new problems. It's not. Yeah, there'll be technology. There'll be different things they didn't have. But these are the same exact things that are going on. The Bible is coming to life when the world does. There's a vibrancy to the scriptures that is actually, it goes beyond the vibrancy of the outcries of the people in this nation. So let's remember that. And remember the war isn't against us. It's on the lamb. And those with him, those by his side are called and chosen and faithful. That's us. That's encouraging. This is where the rubber meets the road. I had a a conversation with uh, my admin, uh, Angie, and she said, is it weird that I'm excited by all of it and I'm not in despair. I said, no, that's not weird at all. It tells me I think God's got a hold on your heart and your posture. And also, you're motivated to be able to handle whatever else comes. Because I know what it's like, even on Thursday evenings, to be like, I can't take anymore. I can't take anymore. 
I'm going to sit down, chill out. I'm going to time out. I'm going to substitute myself out and try again tomorrow. But God's church has the ability to be resilient in that. So understand God's sovereignty when Nevada changes five different times in the next day and a half. Understand God's sovereignty because our hope is in that. It goes beyond those borders, beyond those policies, beyond those people. Psalm uh, 22, verses 27 through 28. All the ends of the earth, this is going to start to almost sound repetitive, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So here we have a different passage, but it's echoing that same thing. That will be happening. God's glory will be made known. We're on this side of the ultimate revelation and resolution in that front. So we can rely on that. I think I shared a, a week or two ago about how one of my seventh graders said, well, how, how do we apply the biblical principles to where we're living now, the new New Testament? And I love the way he said that, that he was thinking, well, we're in the new New Testament. We are. We're still in the New Testament, but we're on the most immediate, right, and further displaced. But we're still living in that time, and we are living between the Holy Spirit being equipped to us and equipping us to do these things and Christ coming back. We are between those two things. And you add to that the understanding of the crucifixion and what it enabled us to do to live in Christ. We have everything to look back and rely on, and we have more than enough to look forward and remain hopeful. We do. We have it all. We have enough. And so if God's church is acting like we don't, don't be surprised if it feels like he's withdrawn. You can start to imagine a culture where God might be almost tapping his foot saying, I've given you everything you need to handle what you're going through. You're asking me for more? I sent my son to die for you? Now I sent the Holy Spirit to empower you through it? You're sitting on two-thirds of the Trinity and you're asking me to deliver something for you? Again, how do we get over that barrier? It's reading the Bible. It's, it's having a scripture realization of that's right. I can have hope and understand God's sovereignty is very practical in how I navigate these things. If every knee will bow, why don't we start now? Why don't we as the church rally behind that truth and start now? Start to suggest that that is something worth worshiping for and then start to suggest that is something worth relying on as we tackle these different things. Because to be resilient in a culture that gets exhausted sets up a, a wonderful scenario where Christ is displayed. C.S. Lewis's quote, right? Christians are different in the most curious of ways. What is it about you that has you politically involved but not relying on the outcome? What is it about you that has you serving in this way and that way despite how busy your schedule is? What is it about you that is going to that group? You know how many people would say, Blake, you hurt your back and you're getting an x-ray tomorrow and yet you went to that group on Thursday night? Why? Why would you go do that? It makes no sense. You have every excuse, every reason to stay home, stay bedridden. Why would you do that? And obviously the answer is going to be something along the lines of, well, it's worth it to me and here's why. Because here's what I value. Because here's what I'm after. Because there are always a million reasons not to do something and because the devil wants me to stop. He wants me to dwell on things that God is already working through. If every knee will bow, why don't we start now? Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him 
and for him. Again, you start to appreciate the context of these passages some more. You start to put yourself in the shoes of the church in Colossae, and you start to say, well, wait a second. They must have clearly been dealing with something where there was struggle over dominions or rulers or authorities. But remember, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth. So what we are accustomed to, what's visible to us, right, Colossians 1.16, there is more at play than that. So it starts to put it in perspective. If we go to God in a posture of prayer, maybe, but with an agenda a little bit beyond God's sovereign hand and our awareness of his sovereignty, it suggests that the things on earth and the things visible to us warrant us to demand his action, warrant us to say, God, can't you see all this stuff that is happening? What are we going to do about it? And God is saying, you, don't know the, you, you haven't the slightest idea of what I'm going to do about it. What's visible and earthly to us is starting to make all the difference, but God is working through it in a heavenly way beyond what we're dealing with, in an invisible way. doesn't matter. Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So an immature Christian says, I cannot believe the United States is in a station and, and, and spot it's in now. The election's thrown off. It'll never be the same. Uh, the system's corrupt. I mean, right now we have people... Uh, that won't be spending Thanksgiving together as a family because one of them thinks capitalism is better than communism. That's where we're at in the nation. We are now dividing families based on a certain moral or principle instead of valuing unity in that. So we lose perspective and understand that God is working in and through all those systems. So a mature Christian says, okay, well, for whatever reason, God's working through communism in a lot of different ways. And for whatever reason, God's working through capitalism in a lot of different ways. For whatever reason, that senator, that congressman, that church, that pastor, God is working through those people. That's the perspective pastors have when they have a network of local area pastors where they share prayer requests with and meet three or four times a year. I don't know if you knew our pastors did that, but they do. Churches aren't meant to be in the business of, of competing of talking about the ways in which they differ. They're meant to talk about the ways in which they're united, what they're relying on, what they're focusing on. So God's sovereignty over all these things doesn't just suggest that he is capable of controlling it, but it's that he is allowing it to take its course. And so our submission to that course, that process, is not putting our faith in the process, it's putting our faith in the person who has us there, the person of Jesus. Trust the process. For a Christian, that process is, is beyond fathomable for somebody who doesn't know the Lord. Psalm 67, verse 4. Here's something that's a little bit different. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. So here we have a call. We have, we have a reminder all over the Bible that says the nations are going to bend their knee. The nations are going to fear. The nations are going to reject the nations are going to do this, that, and the other. But look at this. The nations will be glad and they'll sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. If you'll notice, why are the nations glad and singing for joy? It has nothing to do with what they're doing. It has nothing to do with their efficacy or their ability to create a society. But it's the fact that God reigns over them and he is the one uh, that will judge with equity. And guide the nations upon the earth. So the nations can rejoice because God is the one guiding them. Right? There are two ways 
to respond to a storm on the seas. One is to really focus on the storm and how bad it is. The other is to focus on the captain and ask, does he have what it takes for me to trust in him? You see, a Christian walk is no different. A a, a walk through struggle and understanding sovereignty over struggle is very similar. We can focus on the storm. We can say, Captain, Captain, do you not understand this storm? But you can realize that when Jesus encountered a storm, he was asleep in the bottom of the boat. Why? Because who had a better grasp on sovereignty than him? He had a sense of peace that didn't make sense amidst the circumstances. And that is something that I've been coming back to over the last six to eight months in my own life. A sense of peace that doesn't make sense amidst the circumstances. That's a telltale sign that God has your heart and that you're relying on his sovereign plan to deliver you from these things. God will guide the nations upon the earth. So yeah, it's actually worth being excited over. God's plan is unfolding. Don't put your ultimate faith, your ultimate stake, don't place all your bets, put all your eggs in the basket of a party or the basket of a policy, but instead put your trust and hope in Jesus and understand his sovereignty will overwhelm and will outweigh everything else. The devil has a tool now that he has been fine-tuning over the last thousands of years, and it's the tool of distraction. So we got to stay focused, okay? Jeremy and I lead ninth graders, and all they are is distracted, 24-7 distracted, okay? Do you have any idea what it's like to be talking through stuff like this and have my phone go off, and I can see that they're all airdropping me pictures of them right then and there? What are you doing? Sit down, shut up. And be focused on what's happening. But it's, it's this thing. And again, they're not going to say, wow, the devil's distracting me from Jesus. They are so distracted, they don't even realize what they're being distracted from. That happens to Christians all the time. They're so distracted that they do not realize what they're being distracted from, right? Because they're consumed. They're concerned. So have the perspective of, of really resting with the Lord. This is where you, you can start to bleed into why there are so many uh, em- emphases on devotional life. Spending daily time in the word, spending time in prayer. Why do you think people do that? It's not to get into heaven. It's to remember we can get heaven here. That's why we're doing that, to remember God's sovereignty. Our understanding of God's sovereignty is not automatic, but God's sovereignty is automatic. So you start to see the breakdown there. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. That's Psalm 47, 8 through 9. For God is the king of all the earth, so sing praises with the psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. That mirrors what we hear from Psalm 67, right? We notice that the reason to sing isn't due to God's action, but rather his position. So our reason to sing, our reason to worship, our reason to rejoice is not due to God's action, but to his position. Regardless of what we feel or don't feel he is doing in our life, we can rejoice in the fact that he is the one of of making it happen. He is the one capable of seeing it through. For God is the king of all the earth. Stop right there. So sing praises with a song. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The reason to sing isn't due to his action. It isn't due to his stepping into our life and making something happen to the point we can see it and appreciate it. But rather, our reason to sing is because of his position, where he is. Last one, 1 Timothy 6, verse 15. 
can start to see how ecclesia comes into play. Paul starts to uh, talk about discipleship here, addressing Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. So he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal, eternal dominion. Amen. So 1 Timothy 6.15 gives us everything we need to be reminded of God's status, God's character, and how unchanging and capable he is. So there's a charge there. So what do we do with this idea of God's sovereignty? Well, I charge you in the presence of God, try to keep the commandment unstained. Try to be free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know what every church in this country and in this world is dealing with, it's that idea of trying to be free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can we do this? A bunch of heathen sinners coming together because Jesus is good, but how can they do that without tripping up, without slipping, without tainting the image of Christ? Well, hopefully, it's by properly proclaiming it in the first place, right? What defined an established church? It was a community centered around the gospel. That's what we talked about last week. It was not centered around how perfect they were or how perfect we're called to be. It was instead pursue these things with the understanding of what God has already done and what he's capable of doing. Because he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So amidst Paul's discipleship of Timothy, he's bringing up the fact that God is immortal. You would imagine that would be a duh thing. Okay, thank you, Paul. Thank you for telling me God can't die. Can we talk about my problems? God is sent, and then Paul says, well, God is someone who no one has seen or can see, but to him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. So don't be so quick to react what you, to what you are seeing before you react to what you can't see. That's the mark of a Christian. A mature Christian says, okay, credit where credit is due. I see what's in front of us. I see a divisive nation. I see problems. I see injustice, Right? Church has done a pretty garbage job of embracing cultural issues and making those that care about them feel appreciated. So we've got to tackle them. But we can't deviate too far from the source that's going to see those things through. We've got to remember, okay, I see. But what I'm relying on is not something I can see. That's where faith comes into play. There are many different ways uh, the Bible brings up the word faithful. We're called to uh, demonstrate our walk of faith in all these different ways. But faith is always tied to a hope and an assurance of the things we cannot see, right? Book of Hebrews. We get to really process what we can see with the motivation and perspective of what we can't, and that is the Holy Spirit. That is God empowering us to do those things. So I I bring up those 10 passages to help us really remember God's sovereignty because they're not going to give you a super practical life application of God is sovereign over this in this way. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible does not equip us with God is sovereign over this in this way. What the Bible says is God is sovereign over this. God is sovereign over this. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So so live according to that which you were called, according to that new change, that new identity that you have in Christ, 
and remember that that's who you are. That we can handle 100% of what we're dealing with by relying on that which has already been dealt with. The cross, the crucifixion, the payment for sin, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the divinity of God's trinity, the intricacies of his sovereignty to realize, you know what? No matter the circumstance, no matter the context, God is sovereign and in control. A mature Christian stops asking the question, God, are you in control? And enters every situation saying, God, show me where. Show me where you are. Show me what you're doing. That helps evangelism go smoother. It helps church planting go smoother. It helps church growing go smoother. It helps counseling go smoother. It helps natural discipleship and growing as brothers and sisters in Christ go a lot smoother because we realize, okay, Lord, how are you working in this person's life? Or how might you be working in this ministry or in this church or in this context? And sometimes it's going to take time for us to understand that. But if we can meditate on the scripture and let the intake of scripture outweigh the outpouring of our efforts, that is what is going to keep us afloat. We keep perspective. You can focus on the storm until you're red in the face, or you can remember who the captain is and sit back and relax for a second and understand that storm will come and another one will follow it and another one will follow it. But lucky for us, you cannot rock the boat of salvation. Once you're in, you're in. The difference is, ecclesia, becoming a, the body of believers, part of the church, is it's going to be up to us how we live that life, that boat ride of salvation through the storms. We can be all hands on deck. <laughs> we can help the captain. Or we can sit back, spend the entire time in the lower deck, not realizing that he is in control and we have an opportunity to serve. So God's sovereignty starts to speak when we start to live out, when we start to act. God's sovereignty isn't always going to act to you. Sometimes it's going to act from you. Ten points, ten passages to, to remember regarding God's sovereignty. Uh, and feel free to dive into the, the larger context of those. I want to end here with uh, three psalms to consider. So if I could get somebody to turn to Psalm 10. Uh, actually, everybody turn to one of these three. Psalm 10, Psalm 4, or Psalm 146. Psalm 10, Psalm 4, and Psalm 146. Because... I want to use what we've already talked about, those 10 passages, those 10 ideas of sovereignty, and I want us to look at an example of somebody living out those ideas, somebody wrestling with God's sovereignty. What does it look like? What does my dynamic with God look like as I'm wrestling with his sovereignty over my life? Uh, does anybody have Psalm 10, and would they be willing to read it? I don't want to read any, any of the three of them. Okay, Lily, would you mind reading Psalm 10 for us? Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak, who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears, no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From the ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless 
and drags him off in his mat. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arms of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness. That would not otherwise be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. You listen to their cry. Defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. So Psalm 10 starts off by addressing God and saying, why do you hide yourself? Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then it lists all these troubles. It lists all these struggles. And here's the end of this fellowship, this moment, this honest prayer with God. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the, the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So what, is, what does Psalm 10 teach us? Well, it teaches us we can come as we are with frustrations. We can come as we are with frustrations, with these questions, with these problems. And unfortunately, especially if you grow up in a Christian church, I think kids are taught that prayer has to be this perfect and polite thing. I don't need to tell you how many times, even in my four years at college, that I was screaming and cussing at the guy who died on the cross for me not here to endorse cussing. What I am here to say is I went as I was with frustrations. And my father met me in that. And he would immediately give me a sense of peace that did not make sense. Because I was authentically coming to a God who loves me so much and wants to hear about it. That's unconditional love. That's unconditional acceptance. Let's talk about it. God, I don't understand this certain theological perspective. Or God, it seems that your scripture is suggesting this, but I want this. Why? The Bible says we ought to be having more of those conversations with him. Be authentic. Come as you are with frustrations. Sometimes that's the best way to understand God's sovereignty. Be real. God will be real right back to you. Second one, uh, who has Psalm 4, chapter 4? Abby, do you mind reading that? Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long would, how long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faith servant, his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin when you are on your beds. Search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. In college, I wasn't sleeping well. Sometimes I still struggle to sleep well. And so I 
actually tried a lot of different things on trying to get better sleep, yada, yada, yada. And then I was like, what if there is some scripture that might help me really start to think about fellowship with God while I'm literally just trying to get a healthy night's sleep? And then, I, so you, obviously, when you do this, right, you find one verse, it's easy to Google it, it's bolded, you take it out of context and staple it on your Instagram post, right? You have no clue what it's actually about, right? But the context of what Abby just read suggests we can go to God, right? But as we do it, we can find that peace and dwell in his safety as we remember who he is and what he is like. Because if we're coming as we are to God with our frustrations, right? Something that he encourages us to do, that, that writers in the Bible saw fruit in, coming authentically with frustrations, we also are called to remember who he is in the process. Because if we are prayerfully going to God while questioning who he is, why are you praying to him in the first place? Remember who he is and remember what he is like. That is just as applicable at 1.15 a.m. on a Twitter feed as it is 9.45 a.m. on a Sunday. Remember who God is and remember what he's like so that that can empower you and equip you to handle that moment. Last one, Psalm 146. Who has that? Blake, would you be willing to read that? Praise the Lord. Let all that I am, or let that all that I am praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God with my dying breath. Don't put your confidence in powerful people. There is no help for you there. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth, and all their plans die with them. But joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He keeps every promise forever. He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. He will be your God, O Jerusalem, throughout the generations. Praise the Lord. Behold the name of the Lord, right? To have a, a greater uh, understanding of how grand and how great now in control this God is gives us much more license to glorify and rejoice in that, regardless of our circumstance. Set aside from whatever else is happening and even whatever else is stirring in our hearts, there's conflict. We're not going to be able to avoid it. But these psalms, those three especially, um, they really give us a cadence of what it is like to come to the Lord. Do you know how many psalms start out pretty rough and end with glorifying God? Most of them. In fact, there are only two psalms that end on what uh, many critics and writers and, and uh, theologians would call a bad note. Psalm 88 is one of them. We actually studied it in Keystone a long time ago. It was How Do Christians Deal with Dark Times? Phenomenal uh, message from Tim Keller we watched and kind of discussed. So these psalms are a, a natural wrestling with God, wrestling with Scripture, getting to the point where he is correcting our thinking. Because as we go about our day, the tendency to drift away from his truth is there. It can start by remembering we're not actually drifting away from him but if we're feeling like we are, what better reason to come back to him? What better reason to realize that he is there with you, regardless of what you're going through, regardless of what you're dealing with? And along with that, uh, especially people our age, 
they, they feel valued and accepted when there is a community that understands what they're going through or they feel like they can go to somebody. In fact, it's easy to visit a ministry like this or, or maybe stay on the outskirts of a community and say, okay, I'll begrudgingly go to this. They don't know what I'm going through. I mean, you don't know the slightest thing about me. And unfortunately, a lot of churches or a lot of Christian TED Talks can pretend to diagnose you and say, here's your problem, here's the answer. But the true ecclesia, the church, is to just affirm and encourage that person saying, God does. Have you gone to him yet? God knows what you're going through. He knows what you're dealing with. That idea of family, that idea of leaning and relying on God and glorifying him in everything we do, he's not distant. He is with us. I mean, talk about the Trinity. God the Father, Jesus the Son. Jesus is literally a bro, okay? We can start acting like it. He can be a friend. He can be somebody we can talk to, somebody we can rely on. And finally, and application-wise for Keystone, he can be somebody we can see in somebody else. God uses his people to speak to those around him. We have to weigh that against biblical principles, right? Lest you forget, beware of false teachers. Beware of, of tongues of deceit. But we can realize this is where we can start to feel God's presence. This is where we can start to learn more about him and see what the body of believers is meant to be. At least that's the hope and that's the challenge. But if we're doing this and then jumping right back to that, we are naturally going to create a culture in our life where we are displacing godly community from everything else that is happening. Now, at this point, I'm beating a dead horse and, and almost being too accusatory and suggesting we are all displacing God from our daily lives. Because honestly, I'm looking around this room and I don't really believe that. Maybe it's true for you. Maybe you really do leave Keystone and you only focus on God two hours a week, once on Sunday, once here. I don't know. It's not up to me to decide that. But what I know happens is we displace godly community from everything else we're dealing with. Why? Oh, it's, it's so hard to come by. There's not enough people like me. No, there are a bunch of people like you. The joke is they don't realize it yet either. So we're going to rally behind that idea, and we're going to act on God's sovereignty. And it's not going to end with the just mental realization, cool, God's in control. Yes, God's in control, but if this building was on fire, would you guys just stand in the parking lot and say, wow, God's in control. He decided to burn down the building. No, help Caleb grab a hose and try to save his job, right? God's sovereignty is going to enable us to do something, to do something in response to what we are seeing. And as we rely on his strength, we can see that through. So as you leave here, whenever we find out which of these buffoons is our president, do not let it dictate your joy, your happiness, your worth, the forecast and outcome for this nation and this world. I'll be honest, it's not the best, regardless of who's in that office. So we're going to have to deal with that. We're going to have an opportunity to demonstrate, wait a second, those people seem to be joyful no matter what. That's exactly what we want to have happen. We can meet people in their, in their problems. We can meet people where they are at. Christ did that. We're called to do it. But if you find yourself meeting somebody else in their hopelessness and despair, <laughs> God wants them to meet you, not the other way around. We're called to bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, something that gives us hope, gives us a sense of peace that doesn't make sense. The ecclesia is the called out ones, not so they can stay stagnant, but so they can start to call out other people. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into some worship. Father God, thank you so much, uh, again, just for the opportunity we have to meet um, and even just kind of step away from everything else that is happening. Um, it can be very healthy and very important for us to really kick back and, and remember who you are. 
Um, remember what you are like, God, and also, very practically, what you've already done for us. God, the majority of our understanding of your Holy Spirit comes from looking back at our life and saying, wow, that's where he was, instead of looking forward and wondering if he's even there. And so I pray that you would remind us of how often you have delivered us from daily struggle and how eternally you have delivered us from the ultimate struggle of sin. I pray that we would not just relish in that, but respond to it. I pray that we would grow this community into what you would like it to be uh, and that we will live a life that is clearly reliant on things outside of these nations, outside of these kings. Thank you for being sovereign. I I pray that you remind us of that each and every day. And it's in your sovereign and holy name I pray, which is powerful. Amen. Amen.